0: Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We'll be looking at chapter 1 this evening, and it looks like there is a typo in the bulletin. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 14. So, beginning with verse 5 and going to the end of the chapter, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, O Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. O oh, Father, as we come to another text seeking to exalt your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. How we do pray that he would be exalted in our eyes, that you would open up our eyes, that we would have unveiled faces as we behold the glory of your Son, and that in beholding his glory, uh, we would see that service to him is reasonable, that it is the only reasonable thing that we can do. Uh, Help us, O Lord, in the midst of whatever challenges we might face, uh, whatever uh, situations that trouble us, that come about that we would uh, be able to stand firm in the faith because we see clearly the glory of Christ. Uh, Lord, we do ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the things that the Christian church has always done is it's always tried to identify groups that are heretical, those kind of groups that are cults. And uh, if you were to ask, you know, what's the difference between a cult and some other kind of error? Uh, one of the things that clearly distinguishes an Orthodox Church from a, from a group that is, in fact, a cult is the doctrine of the Trinity. And one of the ways in which the doctrine of the Trinity is always denied is by people claiming that the Son of God is less than the Father. There is a subordination of the Son, and this is actually very, very common with all heretical groups, And all cults. There is a denial of the doctrine of the Trinity, which is really the foundation of all theology. And so the idea of subordination is is that the Son is less than the Father in some way other than in his manhood through the incarnation. So we we would affirm that, in terms of the the manhood of the Lord Jesus Christ as a man, he is less than the Father. This is the the way we would understand those statements uh, in the Gospels where Christ says, The Father is greater than I, He is greater than. He is greater than Christ insofar as uh, Christ is truly a man and as a man Christ is less than the Father and yet and yet as the Son of God which he has been from eternity and is now and will continue to be to the end of time he is exactly equal with the Father there is no subordination between the Father uh, and the Son as such Uh, the church really worked this out in great detail in the Arian controversy in the fourth century And the product of um, two different councils on the issue, really more than two councils, but uh, at least two ecumenical councils, uh, much debate, much writing, much preaching, uh, was the Nicene Creed, which asserted the full deity of the Son, a creed that we uh, confess our faith using earlier and that the the Christian church has always received as being a good summary of the faith of all Christians. Now, what the Arians were trying to teach was that that the Son of God Was the highest of all created beings. So they were were trying to say, you know, we're not trying to uh, minimize the glory of the sun. We're saying of all the created beings, he is the absolute uh, highest. And what this would mean then is that the Lord Jesus Christ then would be essentially the highest of all the angels, the angels being the the highest of the spiritual beings that God has made. And what what the, the Arians were saying is of that group, he is in fact the highest. Now, this is the position that's taken by Jehovah's Witnesses today, a group that was started in the 19th century, and they are essentially just modern-day Arians on this particular point. Now, there are others who will deny the deity of Christ in other ways, in more extreme ways. In the 16th century, there were the Socinians that came, and they did not just say that Christ was an exalted being, but less than God. They actually said that he was merely a man, so that there is no sense in which Jesus is anything more uh, than a man. And uh, this view is also common today. It's found in uh, uh, predominantly in unbelieving academia, which has uh, gained more and more of a foothold uh, over the recent centuries. Now, against all of this, we have this particular text, which teaches us that the Lord Jesus Christ is not an angel. He is not an angel. He is the Son. And that puts him in a completely different category from angel. He's not the highest in the category of angel, but rather he is the Son of God, therefore in a completely separate category, and as the Son of God, He is fully equal to God. Now, there are many, many texts that you can go to prove the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, to to prove that He is, um, as we read uh, in the Nicene Creed, that He is of the same substance with the Father. Uh, There was uh, one time that, um, back when we lived in South Carolina, there were some Jehovah's witnesses that came to my door, and um, I would always try to uh, speak with them and try to uh, have meet more meetings with them if they would uh, be interested in that sort of thing. One time there was a couple of people that came. One of them was older. And um, we began to discuss the the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they would try to deny it. And I began to show them passage after passage, not just of, of texts that showed that Jesus is God, but even texts that show that Jesus is Jehovah. And was trying to challenge them, saying, you know, if you're really going to be a Jehovah's Witness, you need to be uh, maintaining that Jesus is, in fact, Jehovah. And it was interesting. At one point, uh, the older one, the older man said to the, the younger man that um, there are actually hundreds of texts like this. I was showing them text after text after text, and he says, you know, there are hundreds like this, uh, even ones that say that Jesus is Jehovah. And uh, somehow they, uh, they still felt justified in retaining uh, their position that Jesus is, is somehow uh, less than God. But of all the texts that you could use to show that there is no subordination of the, of the Son to the Father, and that the Jehovah's Witness position is not right, that Christ is not the most exalted of a category of created being, this is probably the very best text. The point of the text is simply to assert, basically, that exactly what the Jehovah's Witnesses say is wrong. That Christ is not an angel. He is not even a created being. He is the one through whom all things were made. And the reason this is so significant is because there is no salvation without the full deity of the Son. If you lose this, you cannot have justification by faith. You cannot have a true atonement. You cannot have salvation by grace through faith in any sense. And all groups, all cults that deny the doctrine of the Trinity also deny every element of salvation. And this is because uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all theology. The only way a true atonement can be made is if one who is equal with God dies. And the only way that can happen is if God himself becomes man. If an angel becomes man in order to save people for, for God, he, the death cannot be sufficient. It cannot be sufficient to actually make an atonement that would satisfy the wrath of an infinite, uh, of an infinite being. And therefore, the one who died on the cross must be God. And if there is anything less than this, there can be no salvation. And so we have this text which teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ is far above all of the angels. Now, remember the, the significance of this text in the context. Uh, as I mentioned, as I mentioned the last couple of weeks, uh, all of the statements in Hebrews chapter 1 are really moving us towards an exhortation that's given in chapter 2 verses 1 to 4. And really, the the whole book of Hebrews is structured around these exhortations. So the author will, uh, will describe something about Christ, some element of Christology, and then he'll use that to give an exhortation to the people of God. And the idea here is that in the Old Testament, there was some way in which angels were involved in the giving of the law. There was some sense in which there needed to be this intermediary between God and man. And so the Jews recognized that this happened in some ways through angels. And what the author is saying is, you know, If it was a bad sin for you to reject the word of angels, you must understand that the one who has given the word now is the eternal son of God, who is far superior to all angels. He's not simply a ministering spirit who has come to serve those who are going to receive salvation. He is rather the king of kings and Lord of lords, very God himself. And if you refuse this salvation, then you will be guilty of an even greater sin. If you remember even the context of the letter, The purpose of the letter is to strengthen the church. Uh, They are clearly facing some kind of persecution, some kind of trouble that is uh, threatening them, that is uh, trying them, testing them, and they are being tempted to turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way in which the author here tries to to ground uh, the the, the Hebrews to which he is writing uh, firmly in the faith is to show them the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as you think, brothers and sisters, about all the challenges of the day, all the ways in which the world is trying to get us to turn away uh, from our faith, uh, turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're to ask, you know, what is the thing that is needed for me to be able to stand firmly, for my children to be able to stand firmly in the faith? That answer is a true vision of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, a true understanding of his glory, such that all the other things around us become uh, dimmer by comparison, with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verse four of chapter one, what we ended with last week, there was the introduction to this comparison, which again is useful for the exhortation that's coming in chapter two. In in, uh, verse four of chapter one, there is this beginning of this comparison between uh, Christ as the son of God and the angels. And this is really what is developed in, in verses five through 14. So all of verses five through 14 is basically the defense of this comparison that Christ, as the Son of God, is far superior to every single angel. He is far superior to all of the angels. And the way in which the author does this is he strings together text after text from the Old Testament and shows really that uh, this doctrine of the deity of uh, the Son of God, the deity of the coming Messiah, is something that was taught even in the Old Testament. And that the Old Testament already proclaimed that when the Messiah would come, that he would, in fact, be far superior to all of the angels. And so, and so this is the way in which, uh, in which the author shows this uh, in the text before us. Now, there are really three ways in the text in which uh, the author shows that Christ is superior to the angels. Uh, first, in his sonship. Christ is a son, and the angels are not. Second, by nature. He is by nature God, and by nature the angels are not. And then thirdly, by kingship. Christ is by nature the king and the angels are not. Now, really everything in one way or another is tied back to sonship. So the idea is the author declares Christ to be the son and the angels are not. And one of the implications of him being the son is that he's God. And then another implication of him being the son is that he's the king. And because the angels are not the son, then they are not God and they are not kings. Uh, that is the, the way that the author uh, breaks down this comparison. So we'll look at this text under those uh, three headings. We'll look at those three ways in which the Son is superior to the angels. So by sonship, uh, by nature being God, and then by kingship, by sonship being verses 5 to 6, by uh, nature being verses 7 to 12, and then uh, by kingship being verses 13 to 14. So look at me again then at verses 5 and 6 as we consider the the first quotations that are are given. Here we have uh, we have uh, really three quotations in verses five and six. Two of them being descriptions of the sun. One of them being descriptions of angels. So one of them is the, the contrast. Uh, the 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 quotations from the Old Testament that are used to describe the sun are taken from Psalm two, Psalm two seven, a very uh, famous messianic text, and also Second Samuel seven. And then uh, the text that is being used uh, for verse six is Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. It's also uh, used in Psalm uh, 97, uh, verse 7. So we'll look first at the description of the Son, where uh, basically the the point of these texts is simply to assert that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. He is, in fact, the Son of God. That's the purpose of the quotation in Psalm 2, and it's the purpose of the quotation in in, uh, 2 Samuel uh, 7. Now, um, in the original context, uh, Psalm 2 is actually building on the, the Davidic covenant, which is found in 2 Samuel 7. So it's, it's quite fitting that the author would put these two things together. Uh, psalm 2 itself was already related to uh, 2 Samuel 7 uh, in this way. Psalm 2 is something of an, of an extension or an expansion of, uh, of the theology that was already put forward in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, and one of the things that becomes very clear is that um, Psalm 2, uh, being a development of the Davidic covenant, uh, was always taken to be a Messianic psalm. Uh, now there are some who will deny this, who will say that Psalm 2 uh, was basically just talking about the enthronement of any Israelite king, and that it was not in its own context referring to, uh, to the, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was only after Christ came that it was then recognized to, be, uh, to, to have a messianic significance, and so then people like the author of the Hebrews would uh, make use of Psalm 2 because it was useful basically for their purposes, um, and that's, that's basically the way the argument goes. Uh, but Psalm 2 really cannot be taken that way. Uh, one because of its relationship to Second Samuel seven, and the Davidic covenant was uh, always taken to be uh, messianic in that way. Uh, but two, even the context of Psalm two, uh, there you have um, the messianic king, and he, he, and we need to call him the messianic king because he is actually called the Messiah in the original text. It's what the anointed means. So, so the 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 all the nations gather against the Lord and against his anointed. That would be the Messiah or the Christ, and. Uh, and all the nations gather around this one, God sets him as the king over Mount Zion, and then all of the nations are given to him. Now, it would be very difficult for you to find an Israelite king who had the obedience of all of the nations. It would also be very difficult for you to find an Israelite king of whom it could be said that if you take refuge in him, you are safe and blessed, which is what's said at the very end of the psalm. At the end of Psalm 2, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. All the greatest kings of the earth, they are to be warned that if they do not bow before the sun and kiss him, that they will experience his wrath and his anger, and that all of those who take refuge in the sun will, in fact, uh, be saved. They will, they will be blessed. It's language that is given really only ever to God. The idea of, of taking refuge, uh, very often in the Old Testament you would d- describe uh, those who truly feared the Lord as they take refuge in the Lord. And here in Psalm 2, uh, very clearly in the text, the text tells us that we need to take refuge in the Son. Now, um, even beyond that, uh, there are there is uh, literature between the Testaments that makes use of this language and of Psalm 2, and that presupposes, again, that Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 are, in fact, speaking of the Messiah. So even as we think about Jewish theology before the coming of Christ, recognize that these texts were Messianic. And so it's really only when you get to the unbelieving academics of the last few centuries that this began uh, to be questioned. Um, The people of God have always received these as being uh, spoken about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, about the coming Savior. Now, uh, one of the things that's important to uh, think about with regard to the the quotation in Psalm 2 is uh, there is this language of begotten. So the text says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And this has been variously understood. What does it mean that the Lord Jesus Christ is begotten of the Father? And there are a number of ways this could be taken. Uh, Some take it to mean that in eternity the Lord Jesus Christ was born of the Father. Others take it to mean the incarnation, or even uh, others, the resurrection. And if you were to ask, you know, which is it, which is correct? in, In what sense is the Lord Jesus Christ born of the Father? Is it in eternity? Is it in the incarnation? Or is it in his resurrection? The answer is really all of them. Uh, and The New Testament makes use of, of, of uh, all of these ideas to describe the, the, the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ was born of the Father. So for instance, with regard to the incarnation, we have the virgin birth. One of the reasons why the virgin birth is so significant is it in some ways mirrors what happens uh, in eternity with the Father and the Son, where um, where uh, Mary is uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit and the way The text works in Luke 1 and in in Matthew 1. The idea is that because of the virgin birth, because she conceives by the Holy Spirit, this proves that what is born in her is in fact the the Son of God. So the miraculous birth points to a divine sonship. And there's a connection then between the eternal generation and in fact uh, the virgin birth. The resurrection, a similar kind of thing is, is said. The resurrection was Christ's entrance into eternal life. And in Romans 1, we read that the Lord Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. In Acts chapter 2, we have a similar kind of thing that that is said. And resurrection is also like a birth uh, in the sense that it is a birth into newness of life. And even then, when we think about our own regeneration, the new birth that's given to us, uh, one of the ways that the New Testament describes this is basically by saying that we are united to Christ in his resurrection. And when we think about the new birth, the new life that we have where we're born sons of God, we are born sons of God by partaking of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ because that was the, the time when he was definitively declared to be uh, the Son uh, of God. And so those would be ways in which, uh, which Christ can be said to have been begotten of the Father. But the most ultimate way, the most ultimate way is in eternity. And the reason why there is so much in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ related to birth and being a son is because this is who he always was from all eternity. It's fitting that the one who is eternally begotten of the Father would be the one who would be born of a virgin as the Son of God, and that he would be the one who would be born in his resurrection from the dead, that we might also be born again as sons of God, being united to him, the one true Son of God. All of these things are connected, and all of this, all this is meant to, to show that the Lord Jesus Christ is superior to all of the angels there is no angel who is eternally begotten of the Father, and therefore it would never have been fitting for an angel in this way to be incarnated or to be raised from the dead like the Lord Jesus Christ, nor did it even have meant the same thing. Now, now uh, so that's the, the, the text from Psalm 2. And as I mentioned, so the Second Samuel 7 text really works the same way. There it's uh, very clearly being spoken of uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and we have a number, numerous texts that the prophets develop uh, making use of 2 Samuel 7 where they show their understanding of this referring to the Messiah and it's a description of the Lord Jesus Christ as the son and the point in, in all of this uh, is to say that the Lord Jesus Christ is the son in the most ultimate sense in the context of 2 Samuel 7 um, the, the, the point that's being made is that there will be a son of David who will yet also be the son of God who will build a house for God which is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and who uh, will also have an everlasting kingdom. This this, this is the promise that's made in 2 Samuel 7, and it is the reality for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, the point of then quoting Psalm 2 7 and 2 Samuel 7 and applying it to the Lord Jesus Christ is is simply to say that Christ is the Son in the most ultimate sense. In the most ultimate sense, he is truly the Son of God. Now, uh, the second thing that's said is that the angels are not sons, they are not sons. Christ is the Son, the angels are not sons, and therefore when the Son comes into the world, all of the angels who are not sons have to worship Him. They acknowledge the superiority of another who is in a different category than them. Now, as I mentioned, this text here in verse 6 is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 32 in Psalm 97. One of the things that's interesting about the Deuteronomy 32 text is it's taken from the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and there it actually speaks of sons of God worshiping him. So not the angels worshiping him, but sons of God worshiping him. And this leads to, the, to a, uh, an important question that we'd have to ask in light, of the argument of, in light of the argument of the author to the Hebrews. And that is, is it not the case that angels were called sons in the Old Testament? Uh, there are actually several texts where angels are called sons of God. And uh, not just in the, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, but even, even in the Hebrew as well. There are places where angels are, in fact, called uh, sons of God. And the answer is yes, there are places, as I mentioned. Um, Israel is also called a son of God. So even beyond the angels, the, uh, Israel is called the son of God. All Christians are sons of God as well. However, the point that the author to the Hebrews is making is that there is a sense in which none of these are truly sons. None of them are sons by nature. All of them are sons in a very derivative sort of way. And so when we think about the, the sense in which Christ is the Son of God, that sense is really reserved only for the second person of the Trinity. It is only reserved for the Son of God. He is the Son in a way that no other person is son. And so even as we, we, say, we see that in other places, uh, Son of God in this or that way, we want to receive it and recognize that it's true in some way. But what the author to the Hebrews is telling us is as as much as we can uh, affirm those things, the truest sense of son is really only given to one. And all of those who are sons by derivation are called upon to recognize the superiority of the true sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the thing that makes the sonship of Christ superior to any kind of derivative sonship is that Christ is the son by nature. He is the one who is the Son as the one eternally begotten of the Father. And this is the reason why, then, the author moves on to this next. In, in verses 7-12, through 12, he speaks of the nature of the angels versus the nature of the Son. And what it means for Christ to be the Son, in the, this truest sense, is that He is fully God. And that can be said of no angel, and it can be said of no man. And so he actually begins, and in reverse order here, he, he uh, speaks of the angels first. Now in the, in the, the text that I'm reading out of, um, the relationship between verse 7 and 8 is a little bit obscured. Um, this is uh, the, the first time in the book of Hebrews that you have a, a, a connecting words in Greek that are being used that link two things that are contrasted. It could, it could easily have been translated on the one hand this, on the other hand this, or so on the one hand the angels are made this way, uh, but on the other hand... Christ is this, uh, this will be something that the author of the Hebrews uses over and over again. It's, it's, um, it's a very, very common construction uh, in, uh, in the book of Hebrews. And so, for some reason, this is not, doesn't come out in this particular translation, but the idea is, on the one hand, he says of the angels, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers flames of fires. but to the Son on the other hand, he says this. Now notice then, the angels are by nature spirits. And they are made into a flame of fire. They are ministers. Uh, they, are, they are merely servants because of, of what they are by nature. They are, in fact, spiritual beings. So they are, in that sense, different uh, than us. And yet, they are subordinate. They're subordinate to the Father. And they have a position of servitude. That is who the angels are by nature. And this will be repeated again in verse 14. The angels are by nature ministering spirits. They have a spiritual nature that makes them glorious in their own right, but they are in fact still limited in very important ways. And so the angels are ministering spirits on the one hand, but then notice on the other hand, the way the sun is described. Now this comes with two texts, uh, quotations from Psalm 45, and then secondly, Psalm 102, and we'll take those in turn. Notice in verses eight and nine, you have the, the quotation from Psalm 45 where well, there are a number of things said about the Messianic king. Psalm 45 was, again, a very, very clear uh, Messianic psalm that was just straightforwardly describing what, uh, what the Messianic king would be like, um, even, again, building on the Davidic covenant like Psalm 2. And there you have uh, the, the description of the king as having an eternal kingdom, one who rules righteously and who is anointed by God. Those are the things that are said of the Messianic king in Psalm 45. But notice as well... There are two times in Psalm 45, and this is in the original Hebrew as well, all the way back in the Old Testament, where the king is directly addressed as God. He is directly addressed as God. Christ is the Son of God, and what it means that he is the Son is that it, he is, in fact, God. Um, one of the things that uh, some people try to, to distinguish sometimes is a distinction between Christ as the Son of God and Christ as God the Son, So the idea is that there could be some difference of meaning between Son of God and God the Son. And in some ways, the distinction's not that harmful um, in the sense of, you know, um, you or I could be a son of God, we are sons of God by adoption, and yet we're not God the Son. And so that's a way to to use language that would show the distinction, the ways in which Christ is the Son, that we're not the Son. Uh, And yet, when the scriptures call Jesus the Son of God, it always means God the Son. There is no distinction when it is used of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really what's being affirmed here. Christ is Son, and what that means is, by nature, He is God. And therefore, the text in Psalm 45 says, "'Your throne, O God, is forever and ever.'" This is not talking about the Father's general ruler over all creation. This is talking about the kingdom that the Messiah will receive from the Father as He's anointed by the Father. And notice, He is called God. "'Your throne, O God, is forever and ever.'" And this is then made even clearer in verse 9, where it says, Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions, or more than your companions. Therefore, God, the Son, your God, the Father, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. The Father, who is God, anoints the Son, who is God, with the oil of gladness. Now, this text has actually given um, many uh, modern uh, unbelieving academics quite a uh, a problem, as there's, there's some indication from the text that by Jehovah, we can think of the, the Son of God in terms of the appropriation of the work. Um, there in the, in the context, Jehovah comes and builds up Zion, which is something that, that of course, the Davidic king would do as well. But, but basically, um, this is a text that basically says the Son is Jehovah. Uh, this would be a good text to use with a uh, Jehovah's Witness. Uh, when it says LORD there, LORD even is uh, retained in all caps in uh, our translation to show that it is referring to Jehovah himself. Now, the text in Psalm 102 is uh, declaring two things about Christ that show that he, is, uh, that he is God. First, as Jehovah, he is the one who has created all things. He is before all things. And then also he is the one who is beyond all things. He is the one who will be there when all things expire. So he is before all of creation and he will last beyond all creation, meaning he is eternal. Uh, he, he, is, he goes beyond creation in both ways. Now, verse 10 is, is with regard to creation. So you, Lord, that is you, Jehovah, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. This is speaking of the Son, Christ, as the Son by very nature is Jehovah, who laid the foundations of the earth. Then notice, secondly, secondly, then Christ is also more permanent than creation. This is what's spoken of in verse eleven, verses eleven and twelve. So, whereas all of creation will pass away, and even Christ, in His great sovereignty, can simply roll up all the old creation like a garment; He can simply cause it to expire, and yet He is the one who will remain. And even beyond that, he is completely immutable, that there is no sense in which Christ changes in his deity. Uh, this is affirmed again in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, where it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The idea of being immutable, being unchangeable, is something that is, can be affirmed only of God. Even the angels are mutable. It's the reason why angels could fall. Angels could fall because they are mutable. And yet God is, in fact, immutable, and what the author is saying here is that Christ is by nature that. He is exactly equal with the Father. He is Jehovah himself because he is the Son. Because he is the Son, he is equal, meaning he is the creator, meaning he is the one who will roll up the old creation like a garment, and he is the one who never changes. This is who the Son is by nature because he is, in fact, uh, the Son. The angels, on the other hand, are ministering spirits. They are far less than the Son. Now, the last thing that is said is that Christ is the King. If He is the eternal Son of God, it means also that He must have the the kingship that will last to all time. This is a necessary implication of His sonship. And the way in which the author uh, affirms the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ in distinction to the angels is... Uh, by quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1. And it, there's some overlap here in terms of uh, the, the themes of the text. Obviously, Psalm 45 is asserting kingship as well. And uh, also, Psalm 110, verse 1 is another text that can, can be used for the deity of, uh, of the Son. This is something that, uh, the, that Jesus Christ himself uses when uh, he is challenged by the Pharisees. And uh, he uh, says to them, how is it that that, uh, that the Messiah could be David's son when David himself calls him Lord? And so the idea is that The one who is David's son yet already existed before David and David was already calling him Lord. And that comes from Psalm 110, uh, verse 1. But here the emphasis is not on that. It's on the next part of the Psalm, uh, the next part of verse 1 in Psalm 110, where it is said to this one who is the Lord of David, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And the point of the text is to say the angels have never been uh, the subject of that kind of language. They never have God the Father say to them that he will subject all enemies under the feet of angels. They do not have the kingship in this way. Rather, by contrast, they are the ones who are ministering spirits, said again in verse 14. They are not kings. They are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. As the author will say in in chapter 2, verse 5, God has not subjected the world to angels. He has not subjected the world to angels. He has subjected the world to His Son. And this is necessary. He is Son, therefore He is God, therefore He has kingship. And that makes Him far superior to every angel in the world. Now, why, again, the comparison? Why go to such lengths to show in all of these ways that Christ is superior to the angels? Remember the purpose. Everything is driving towards that exhortation. Uh, You have to understand the glory of the Son of God. You as a Christian have the name of Christ put upon you. The one that you follow, your ability to follow him faithfully is dependent upon the way in which you see his glory. And you have to understand that if it were the case that we were following a message of God relayed to us by angels, that would be sufficient for God to expect you to be faithful to him even unto death. It would be, it would be very reasonable for God to expect that of you. But what the author of the Hebrews is saying is he's saying Christ has come as one who is far superior to all of the angels and he without question deserves your allegiance even to death, whatever you are called to do. No matter how much suffering there is, you are to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, again, there there are so many ways in which um, the church is being attacked today where we are we're being pressured to compromise in our faith. And the great thing that is needed, the thing which when the author to the Hebrews is faced with this question and is trying to, to encourage Christians who are facing a very similar circumstance as we are, the first thing he does is say, Christ is infinitely glorious. And that is the thing that you need to know in order to be able to stand firm. Uh, may it be that God would, in fact, give you eyes to see the glory of his Son, and that in so doing you would stand firm and bear fruit that is fully pleasing to God in your lives. Let's pray. O oh, Father, how we do profess our faith and allegiance to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, how we do give him all worship and glory and honor and praise. Lord, what a wonderful thing it is to have such a mighty Savior, to have such a a wonderful King, to have uh, such a great Lord who has created even the heavens, who is immutable, who never changes, who is gracious, glorious, the eternal Son of God. Lord, help us to see his glory and to give us, Lord, the strength by your Spirit to stand firm, uh, even as many today are not. Uh, give us the grace to stand firm, O Lord, and give that grace to many others as well, uh, that the name of the glory, that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ might be exalted in the earth. For we ask all of this in His name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com you can also follow us on youtube facebook and instagram may god enlighten the eyes of your heart that through the preached word your eyes may be open to behold the glory of christ more and more